Eliana must have been like barely three years old the first time that I heard her say from the back seat of the car, it's so hard to wait. I'm not sure where she picked it up from. Maybe Tamara or I had complained about the difficulty of waiting more than we realized. It's true though, isn't it? It is very hard to wait. Think about some of the things you've had to wait for. Things that compelled you to say something like that, to express that sentiment. The weeks leading up to your wedding day, or the birth of your first baby, the work days before the vacation, presence on Christmas morning, start of a new job, even some more mundane things can yield a certain excitement blended with frustration, waiting for the next Marvel movie to release, <laughs> the arrival of the new book that you ordered two days ago from Amazon, or even an excellent home-cooked meal for dinner. What makes it so hard to wait? On the positive side, there's the value of what we're waiting for. We tell ourselves over and over again, it'll be worth the wait. While we're waiting, it seems like forever. But once the waiting is over, when we look back, it seems like it was no time at all. But there's the negative side too. Sometimes it's hard to wait because what we're going through right now really stinks. Our current situation is frustrating and we believe that what we're waiting for will help or fix the difficulty, or at least distract us from the pain for a little while. Jesus presents a trio of parables that all have to do with waiting. These parables are linked together by the theme of farming and food production, but they're all painting a picture of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was inaugurating in his ministry In the Gospel of Matthew, we've been reading about how Jesus was bringing the heavenly kingdom to earth. Last week, we glanced at an outline of the whole Gospel that showed how Matthew has alternated between narratives about Jesus and the content of some of Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 13, we're sitting in the heart, the very center of Matthew's Gospel, and we are listening to Jesus teach in parables, kingdom parables, Parables that teach us what the heavenly kingdom brought to earth looks like. The first parable, which we looked at last week, the parable of the sower and the soils, depicted the kinds of responses that the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom would face in the world. As Jesus announced the arrival of the heavenly kingdom on earth, many were rejecting or ignoring or opposing or only partially accepting his message. But some proved to be good soil. Hearing and understanding the gospel, responding with faith and repentance, coming to Jesus to ask for more clarity. This is an aspect of the mystery of the kingdom Jesus was revealing through his parables. That so many would reject the gospel was a surprise to the Jewish people. Their expectation was that when the heavenly kingdom came to earth, there would be widespread acceptance and immediate judgment of those who rejected. In the trio of parables we're going to look at this morning, Jesus zooms in on some of those expectations and overturns them. Fulfillment without consummation is what Jesus depicts in these parables. 
And the Jewish people had a hard time accepting this reality. All three of these parables depict the need to wait. Not for the kingdom to come, for Jesus is the king, and he is inaugurating the kingdom in his ministry. All three of these parables depict the need to wait for the consummation of the kingdom. We begin with the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, as it's often called, which highlights the need to wait for the harvest. We could frame the question the parable seeks to address this way. How can the heavenly kingdom be on earth if evil remains? How can Jesus be the king, and how can he be establishing God's kingdom on the earth without punishing all the wicked? Let's look at the story in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. I mentioned last week that the first parable, the parable of the sower and the soils, seems to be presented as having some keys to understanding all the other parables. In other words, we should see connections between the rest of the kingdom parables and the first parable. Here, we might simply notice that the good soil of the parable of the sower and the soils has become the good seed. Before we draw in Jesus' explanation of this parable, let's make sure we understand the story itself. First, observe that the heavenly kingdom is being compared in certain ways to this entire story. From Jesus' explanation, we'll draw out precisely what the comparison points are. Second, Look at the action of the enemy. Under cover of dark, while everyone is asleep, an enemy snuck in and sowed these nasty weeds all over the field where the sower had already sowed good wheat seed. This is an act of bioterrorism. Roman law from the first century actually prohibited this kind of action specifically, so this is not unheard of. What the enemy sows is typically recognized as darnel, a relative of wheat that early on looks somewhat similar, as you can see on the picture on this first slide. After a few weeks have passed, the darnel would be recognizably different from the wheat, which is why Jesus depicts the servants noticing and alerting the homeowner. Much is often made about the fact that wheat and darnel look similar in the early stages of their growth. However, Jesus does not draw attention to that fact anywhere in the story or in his explanation. In fact, Jesus plainly calls attention to the fact that they can be distinguished. 
So what's the danger? What was the enemy intending to do? His desire would have been to destroy this man's crop. The enemy may have anticipated that they would try to uproot the weeds. In verse 29, Jesus has the sower affirm the danger of uprooting the weeds. Doing so would result in uprooting the wheat. This is because the darnel has a deeper and stronger root system which intertwines with the roots of the wheat. And so to uproot the weeds would also uproot the wheat. But notice that the weeds don't actually harm the wheat. The other hope of the enemy may have actually been to kill the sower and his family. Darnell is known to produce a poisonous fungus. So if the darnell were to be harvested together with the wheat, the flour that would have been produced would be ruined and potentially poisonous to anyone who might eat it. However, the wise sower will not be fooled. What did the enemy actually accomplish? The only thing the enemy accomplishes is to distract the servants. The servants are depicted as surprised by the presence of weeds in their master's field, probably because there would have been a huge amount of these weeds that had become visible. When the master wisely reasons that the only explanation could be the work of an enemy... The servants immediately ask if they should get rid of the weeds. The sower responds that they must not do that because that would risk harm to the wheat. Notice that this is the sower's primary concern, that none of the wheat would be lost. And notice also that the sower doesn't blame the servants for not staying up all night to be sure that this kind of thing didn't happen. It's interesting at this point to see what the enemy in the story does not do. Jesus tells this story for a very specific purpose, and he, of course, chooses the details he wants to include, and he doesn't intend all the details that he does include to be allegorized, as we'll see in his explanation. However, consider that the enemy doesn't come in the middle of the night and set fire to the field. The enemy doesn't dig out the seeds that the sower had already sown, All the enemy is able to do is to mimic the work of the sower by sowing bad seed in the midst of and on top of the good seed. The enemy can't eat the seed, he can't destroy the seed, he can't uproot the seed or otherwise harm the seed. Hold on to that idea for just a minute. The key instruction is in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. This will not be elaborated on in Jesus' explanation, but it becomes the backdrop for the point that Jesus does emphasize in his explanation. What happens to the weeds at the harvest? Let's move to consider Jesus' explanation. Skip down to verses 36 to 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. As we saw last week, Jesus is speaking these parables to the crowds, and he intends these parables to conceal the truth from those who remain outside. But then he offers explanations to his disciples, to those who come asking for more information, more understanding. The disciples refer to the story as the parable of the weeds of the field. And they've recognized that the weeds are certainly the focal point, or at least that's the part of the story they want to know about. They're most interested in understanding the weeds and what happens to them. Jesus lists out seven specific details of the story and explains their meaning one at a time, giving kind of a key to understanding the symbolism in the story. If you take a look at the chart in your sermon notes, you can see Jesus' explanation lined up with the details of the story. The major message Jesus communicates here is that evil will be judged only at the end. The focus of his explanation is on the harvest, judgment day, whereas that seemed to be merely the conclusion of the story. However, this reveals the point Jesus was seeking to communicate, and it clarifies the question Jesus was seeking to answer. Let's walk through the chart in your sermon notes reflecting Jesus' explanation in these verses. First, Jesus says that the sower is the Son of Man, which is, of course, himself. Jesus is the Son of Man, the figure who approached God's throne in heaven in the vision of Daniel chapter 7. The human who received God's kingdom and extended that kingdom to his saints. Thus, Jesus is also the master of the house, from verse 27 in the story. Second, Jesus, is also, see, Jesus says that the field in the story is the world. From verse 41, we see that the angels gather out all causes of sin and all lawbreakers from his kingdom. Recall from verse 24 that we were dealing with his field. Thus, in Jesus' parable, the world is his kingdom. Jesus is the rightful ruler of this world, and he is reclaiming it as he brings the heavenly kingdom into and to encompass the earth. This fits with Jewish expectation that the whole world was created to be God's kingdom. And so to have Jesus claiming that God's kingdom is here now, and yet evil is still so prevalent, seems quite odd indeed. Next, Jesus says that the good seed refers to the sons of the kingdom, the citizens of the kingdom, who he also identifies as the righteous people in verse 43. The weeds, then, refer to the sons of the evil one, the children of the devil, the seed of the serpent, which he also identifies as all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers in verse 41. Sixth, Jesus says the harvest depicts the end of the age. And finally, Jesus says that the reapers represent angels. 
We can also connect the dots of the actions described in the story to the actions Jesus elaborates in verses 41 to 43. In the story, the reapers will burn the weeds at the harvest. Jesus indicates that this depicts how angels will throw all causes of sin and all lawbreakers into the fiery furnace. Glance back at verse 42 for just a second. It's probably significant that the phrase, throw them into the fiery furnace, is a direct quotation from Daniel 3.6, as what Nebuchadnezzar threatened to do to those who refused to worship his statue. Here, that imagery is ironically reversed. In Daniel 3, you have three righteous men wrongly thrown into the fiery furnace, while here there will be all the wicked justly thrown into the fiery furnace. Back to the chart. Last but not least, in the story, Jesus described the wheat being gathered into the sower's barn. And here he explains that that was a picture of the righteous shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This phrase also seems to come from the book of Daniel. Daniel 12.3 had spoken of the shining of the righteous when they are resurrected from the dead. So Jesus' explanation clearly focuses on the future consummation of the kingdom. And that's the point for his disciples. They must wait. The disciples embodied the attitude of the sower's servants in the story who wanted to immediately uproot the weeds as soon as they recognized them as Darnell. Remember how James and John once asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to destroy some Samaritans who didn't welcome them? Overall, this reflected Jewish expectations of the arrival of the kingdom. Most Jews were eagerly expecting the arrival of the Messiah, anticipating that he would, when he showed up, immediately destroy the Romans and conquer the world through military force. They were expecting Judgment Day to come when the Messiah came. So, when the Jewish people looked at Jesus and his bizarre little band of followers, it's no wonder they struggled to see Jesus as the king. This parable reveals the secret, the mystery, embedded and partially hidden in the Old Testament, that the arrival of the kingdom would not eradicate evil in the world all at once. As one writer puts it, Jesus sows with stories. The kingdom comes not with force, ultimatums, or armies, but with nonviolent appeal to the imagination. It is crucial to hear Jesus identifying the field of the parable as the world, not identifying it with the church, as has often been done throughout church history. This parable is not painting a picture of a quote-unquote mixed church and how to deal with it. Matthew does speak to that issue in other places, but this passage is not addressing that problem. Instead, this parable deals with the problem of evil in the world and how Jesus' followers should respond to it. As Patrick Schreiner writes, the kingdom is here on the earth and hidden in plain sight. 
in the midst of evil? Are we willing to follow the instruction of the sower? When we notice the evil weeds in the world, are we content to let them grow until the harvest? The sower is not threatened by the work of the enemy. The sower doesn't seem worried one bit. The servants are easily distracted, but the sower is not. Some of you have expressed so much outrage and frustration with the evil we're seeing in our society. I suspect all of us have, to one degree or another. And so many Christians have been willing and even quick to speak out and blame the church in America and our failure to stand up against tyranny, against the evils of the world. I call that blasphemy against the bride of Christ. Jesus here says that it's not the servant's job to eliminate evil in the world. It's not the servant's job to uproot the weeds. That is not the mission of the church. When citizens of the heavenly kingdom are confronted by the aggression of the sons of the evil one, we are not to respond in kind with hostility. Instead, we must exude a patient confidence in God's sovereignty, in the sovereign rule of King Jesus, because that is how he himself responded to the hostility of evil people in the world. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12.19 Commentator Grant Osborne writes, Christians should not be surprised when pro-abortion and pro-gay laws are established. After all, we are living in a fallen world, and throughout history, evil seems to prosper. It is right to fight such laws, but wrong to expect to turn America or any nation into a purely Christian nation. What else do we need to see here? Jesus' explanation of the harvest paints a picture of the end of the age. And we need to be sure we've incorporated these verses in our understanding of the future and Jesus' return. This passage speaks of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one remaining until the harvest. And the judgment is described in terms of the wicked being removed from God's kingdom. But it does not seem to describe the removal of the sons of the kingdom from the world some years beforehand. In any case, however we sketch out the sequence of events in the future, the focus here is on the actual removal of the wicked. He describes those depicted by the weeds in verse 41 as all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. More literally, the first phrase is all stumbling blocks. As in most of this word's appearances in the New Testament, it seems to be personalized. These are people, people who cause others to sin, who distract other people from following Jesus, from trusting Him, who seek to discourage people from finding life in Jesus Christ. 
And then there are all lawbreakers. More literally, this is all who are doing lawlessness. This is similar to the phrase that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7.23. Those who are working lawlessness. There the phrase referred to people who claimed to follow Jesus as Lord during their lifetime. But then on Judgment Day, these workers of lawlessness will protest that they prophesied, cast out demons, and performed lots of miracles in the name of Jesus as Jesus rejects them eternally because he never knew them. They may have used his name, but he did not know them, have a personal relationship with these people. Here, the weeds are probably more broadly considered as all in the world who rebel against God's law, which would include those who claim to be followers of Jesus, but really do not belong to him. Ultimately, the emphasis is on the repeated word, all. At the harvest, when Jesus returns, he will send his angels to remove everything evil and everyone evil from his kingdom, from his world. All those who remain in rebellion against God, all those who refuse to trust Jesus, will find their eternal place in hell. Where, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses this phrase in six different parables. And one other time, just in his non-parable teaching. Weeping, of course, depicts the sadness and the grief that those in hell will experience eternally. Eternal sadness. Never comforted. Gnashing of teeth in Scripture tends to be an expression of rage. Some folks associate it with pain generically, but passages like Acts 7.54 convey the typical significance of the grinding of teeth in the ancient world. When the Jewish people heard Stephen's condemnation of their generation's rejection of the gospel, Luke writes, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Then, of course, they murdered him. So when Jesus indicates that hell will be a place characterized by gnashing of teeth, he seems to be indicating that the people in hell will be constantly filled with rage. Perhaps they will be outraged that God didn't save them. Perhaps they will be full of jealous rage because of all the people they once knew who will be eternally experiencing joy, and peace. The weeds will be burned, all of them. Not one will be missed. Not one will remain in God's kingdom. Notice in verse 43 that Jesus speaks of the righteous people shining like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The kingdom of the Son is the kingdom of the Father. Or perhaps more precisely, the kingdom of the Son will become the kingdom of the Father. As one writer puts it, the completed kingdom devoid of evil is the kingdom of the Father. This is depicted beautifully in Revelation 21 and 22, where we are told that in the new Jerusalem, there will never be any night. 
and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, nor anything accursed. It is outside the city that the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood will remain. In the meantime, we are to wait patiently for judgment day with the patience of the sower waiting for the harvest. Let's go back and look at the second parable in this trio where we are being instructed to wait for the tree. Consider the parable of the mustard seed, verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. While Jesus doesn't give us an explanation for the parable of the mustard seed, Reading it in context will help us understand it. That this parable and the next one are recorded in between Jesus' laying out of the parable of the weed and the weeds and his explanation of that parable probably suggests that we as readers should interpret these three parables together. If we seek to keep this parable connected with the previous one, we can see that the good seed has become the mustard seed here. Thus, the man who sows is again Jesus, the son of man. And the mustard seed represents the sons of the kingdom. The good soil, those who bear fruit in response to the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Note the reference to being sowed in his field, which was in the previous parable a reference to the citizens of the kingdom being sown in the world. The tiny mustard seed grows into a tree. Thus, the parable displays the growth of the sons of the kingdom. Jesus draws attention to the small size of the mustard seed, how it grows larger than all other garden plants, and how it ultimately becomes a tree. Visualizing this may help. See on the screen a single mustard seed on the tip of a person's finger. Then on the next slide, you can see a drawing seeking to capture all the elements of the parable. Each seed can produce a plant that stretches as high as 12 feet. Usually, they're found clustered together, like on this next slide. The point of the parable comes in the amazing contrast between the tiny size of the seed versus the huge tree that develops. This parable answers the question, is this it? When Jewish people look at Jesus claiming to be the Messiah with his tiny band of 12 faithful followers, claiming that this is the heavenly kingdom on earth, they scoff. Jesus is saying the kingdom starts unbelievably tiny, but it will culminate in something massive and even global. The Jews expected the Messiah to arrive with armies to conquer the Roman Empire in one swift stroke. That is not what Jesus is doing. Yet, this is the heavenly kingdom. Three more points need to be observed. First, and this is subtle, 
but no less important, it is God who makes the plant grow from seed to tree. In verse 32, when Jesus speaks of the growth of the seed, he uses the passive voice. Verse 32 could thus be translated a bit more literally as, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has been made to grow by God, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. What's the point? God causes the kingdom to grow. God increases the population of the heavenly kingdom. He does it in his own time and in his own way. Second, there's something wrong with this picture. Most folks would not speak of the mustard plant as a tree. By using the word tree here, Jesus draws his Jewish listeners in, perking up their ears to ask the question, what tree are you talking about? Connecting to their knowledge of the Old Testament, surely Jesus intends this tree to represent the renewed people of God. Israel, as God would replant it. This is communicated in such passages as Ezekiel 17, 22. The prophet announces to the Jews who are about to go into exile, Thus says Lord Yahweh, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. This is the ultimate goal of the parable, to depict Jesus and his disciples as the foundation and starting point, the seed that will grow into the renewed, restored, reconstituted Israel of God. And in the very next verse of Ezekiel 17, we find the biblical backdrop of the birds Jesus mentions in the parable. So finally, we have to talk about the birds. Jesus depicts the mustard seed growing into a tree whose branches become a resting place for the birds of the air. One writer says this about the birds. A bird looking for seeds to eat might miss this tiny seed and move on to something larger, such as a sunflower seed. The bird that didn't notice the seed before might soon find this bush a good place to build its nest. Why does Jesus include this detail? Most likely... It is because Jesus is thinking of passages like Ezekiel 17, 23, where the prophet goes on in his description of the tree that Yahweh will replant. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Who are the birds in Ezekiel's prophecy? Gentiles. The birds represent Gentiles. The kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating in mustard seed smallness. God will cause it to grow so that it encompasses all nations. The reconstituted Israel of God must include Gentiles. As Jesus and Matthew have hinted at several times already in this gospel, and as the Old Testament repeatedly prophesied. So, the parable of the mustard seed calls for Jesus' followers, both then and now, to wait for the tree to finish growing. When Jesus told the parable for his original hearers, the seed had just been planted. 
They were going to have to wait to see it blossom and grow. As in the previous parable, the kingdom's arrival would not spell the end of all evil all at once. This message can come across to us as well. Perhaps we could phrase the message in terms of the prophet Zechariah's well-known words. Don't despise the day of small things. When you look around at this church, or even at the church in America, or the church around the world, and it seems to you that the church isn't making much of a difference, making much impact in the world, don't be discouraged. Commentator Dale Bruner writes, The gospel goes out as seed, little but alive. And it comes back with big things like food and shade and shelter for the nations. The kingdom will be a sheltering tree for the world. Don't be hypnotized by size. Don't be distracted by the loud, the large, and the luxuriant. The church is to be characterized by steady growth that looks as mundane as God feeding the birds. And let's not feel threatened by the culture's attack against the church's biblical values. The kingdom is God's tree. It cannot be chopped down, and it will never die. The sons of the evil one may build scarecrows in the field, but let's not be intimidated into abandoning the nourishment and shade of the tree God is causing to grow. Don't give up on the church. Finally, Jesus tells the parable of the hidden leaven, where he ultimately depicts waiting for the bread. Look at verse 33. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This parable also depicts the kingdom as something God causes to grow. But this parable is different than the previous two. There's no field in this one. Instead of being outside in the field, the action happens inside the house. The actor is no longer a man who sows, but a woman who hides something. So what's being described? The process of leavening focuses on the internal transformation of dough that results in an edible loaf of bread. Jesus uses an odd word that draws our attention, similar to how he referred unexpectedly to the mustard seed becoming a tree. This time it's the word hid that seems out of place. This word may draw attention to the hidden nature of the heavenly kingdom as Jesus is bringing it into the world. These parables are both revealing and concealing the hidden nature of the heavenly kingdom the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, according to verse 11. In verse 35, we're going to see Matthew referring to what Jesus has been doing with these parables as communicating hidden things. And perhaps we are meant to recall again Jesus' praise of God back in Matthew eleven twenty-five, where he thanked God for hiding truths from those who think they're wise while also revealing truths from, to little children. So what's the point here? The transformation being described is a hidden reality. Many will not see it until the process comes to completion. What is leaven, anyway? Commentator David Garland explains, leaven was produced by keeping back a piece of the previous week's dough, storing it in suitable conditions, and adding juices 
to promote the process of fermentation. After several days, the old dough was sufficiently fermented to be used in a large mass of dough to give it lightness. This woman is described as hiding leaven in three measures of flour. This is essentially equivalent to a 50-pound sack of flour. What's being described here is not a woman preparing a week's worth of bread for her family. Rather, this woman is preparing enough bread to feed 100 to 150 people. This is bread for a party, for a feast. So what does it all mean? Unlike the previous parables, we're not looking at the kingdom in relationship to the world. Instead, Jesus seems to be describing the transformation that takes place within the kingdom itself. Notice again the passive verb at the end, till it was all leavened by God. Thus, when people outside the kingdom look at the sons of the kingdom, all they can see is akin to a lump of dough, a big, doughy, inedible, unattractive blob. That's what you look like to the world. Thus, when people see us, They're not impressed, and they're not attracted. It doesn't smell good. It doesn't look good. But for those inside the kingdom, the leavening process is happening. Mark Bailey, current chancellor of Dallas Seminary, gets to the point here. The mystery of the leavening process is the internal growth effected by the Holy Spirit, which the kingdom will experience before its final manifestation in the world. While the Holy Spirit comes from without, he works internally to permeate the whole. Likewise, Gerald Bilks writes, the process of leavening cannot be seen with the human eye. Neither can the growth of the kingdom of God in a person's heart. The Spirit changes a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, making it soft and pliable. Although the effects of his work will indeed become visible, this radical transformation is in itself mysterious and invisible. Thus the challenge of this parable for the disciples is to wait for the bread. As with the message of the previous parable, we can become cynical and jaded and frustrated because of the opposition from the world, but perhaps even more so, We can become frustrated with the slowness of our own growth. To quote Bilks once more, leaven makes the whole loaf rise. It makes it light and airy and tasty throughout. Not one bit of loaf is left unaffected. Likewise, someone whose heart has been affected by the gospel will ultimately show in his whole life that a change has taken place. It's true that on this side of eternity, the believer will still continue to be plagued by sin. Yet, the growth of, his, of the kingdom within him will affect all of him. His thoughts, his habits, his actions, his words, his pursuits, his priorities. In short, his life as a whole will be dramatically changed. The heavenly kingdom will become nourishing bread for the world. We the citizens of the heavenly kingdom, have this bready character because we serve a king who came down from heaven as the bread of God and gave his life to eternally nourish all who would feast on him. 
Trusting in him is pictured as eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John 6. Jesus intends that we would be nourished, strengthened, and preserved by believing in his life for us, his death for us, and his resurrection for us. The gospel of the kingdom comes packaged in all these images, all these figures of speech, which leads us to ask the question again, why parables? Look at verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The disciples had asked why Jesus had spoken in parables, and Jesus himself gave a slightly different answer. We looked at verses 10 to 17 last week, where Jesus focused on the judgment aspect of his speaking in parables. He used parables as a way of speaking in two ways at the same time to conceal the mysteries of the kingdom from those who were remaining in their rebellion against God and their rejection of Him, while at the same time revealing the mysteries of the kingdom to His disciples who come to Him asking for explanation. Matthew here focuses on the more positive reason, and he suggests that Jesus' teaching method is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. The quotation comes from Psalm 78 too. And the heading of Psalm 78 identifies Asaph as the author author of this second-to-longest psalm. Asaph wrote many psalms, but he is also identified as a prophet in 1 Chronicles 25.2 and 2 Chronicles 29.30. But this is no future-tense predictive prophecy. Like most of Matthew's, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet statements, something more complicated is going on. Asaph was describing what he was doing in Psalm 78. In this psalm, Asaph is providing a poetic history lesson of sorts. The hidden things he was speaking of were reminders of Israel's history in order to challenge the Jews of his day in the face of their stubborn rebellion and forgetfulness. But the history lesson takes on parabolic significance as Asaph draws attention to patterns of God's acts in their history that the people had not grasped. He highlights God's grace in the face of the people's repeated rebellion. And it is interesting to see how both Jesus and Paul, on multiple occasions, reached into Psalm 78, Asaph's poetic history lesson, to identify Jesus as, for example, both the true manna, and the rock that provides water for his people. In any case, Matthew sees Jesus' speaking in parables as fulfilling the prophetic pattern of Asaph. Commentator David Turner writes, Just as Asaph utters profound truths for the next generation, so Jesus reveals the ultimate secrets of the kingdom of heaven to his own generation. Just as Asaph discerns the pattern of God's faithfulness to his people that overrides their disobedience, so Jesus' parables lay out for the disciples the pattern of kingdom reception and rejection until the day of ultimate judgment and reward. 
As we conclude this morning, I want to consider the question, what are we waiting for? American author William Faulkner once said, and sure enough, even waiting will end if you can just wait long enough. The Apostle John saw a vision of souls under an altar in heaven who were crying out, asking the Lord, how much longer until judgment day? In Revelation 6, do you remember the answer they got? A little while longer. We too must wait a little while longer. But in the meantime, to motivate us and to hold us steady while we wait, Perhaps it would be good to remember what we are waiting for. The Apostle Paul summarizes it really well in Titus 2.13. He writes that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast, staying awake and remaining faithful, experiencing the leavening work of the Holy Spirit, The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Peter reminds us what sort of people we ought to be, living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Oh yes, we must wait for the harvest. God's judgment will come on all the wicked. As it is depicted to the Apostle John in Revelation 19, Jesus will appear riding a white war horse, and he will slay all of the wicked just by speaking a word. But Peter adds to this, since waiting for judgment on our enemies shouldn't be our primary focus. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness and righteousness alone dwells. We are waiting for the harvest, the elimination of all evil in God's good creation. We are waiting for the tree, the reception of the gospel by people from every tribe and language and people and nation. We are waiting for the bread the total transformation of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Instead of the ding of the oven, we wait for the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It will all be worth the wait. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, would you pray with me? O great King, we do ask that you would wrap up this history that you have written. The conclusion has been written, and we wait for the experience of it, the entrance into it. We wait for your return. Would you help us to wait well? Would you help us to wait pursuing obedience to everything that you've taught us, everything that you've commanded us. And would you help us to wait, trusting you with the things we don't understand, 
that the pain that we experience due to a fallen world or due to fallen people or due to our own sin and failure. Give us grace, Lord, to walk faithfully and to wait faithfully. Thank you for the certain, certain fulfillment of your promises. Help us to trust you in all of those things and to be a a witness, a testimony to others that what we're waiting for is sure to come and it will bring the happy ending that we all long for. Thank you, Lord, for being with us and walking with us and staying with us to the very end. We count on you for all these things. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.